Let me pray with us. Father, we give you this time as we have these songs. We now give you the attention of our heart and our mind. As we get into your word, I pray that you would put yourself on display before us in maybe a new way this morning that would cause us, that would cause us to not only be the men and women that you've called us to be, but that it would cause us to become totally abandoned. Totally abandoned for your glory and for your sake. That when it came to times of praise like this one, we've been in this morning. Our hearts, our minds, our mouths, our hands would be totally at your disposal. That we would forget anything that is burdening us. That we would forget everyone who is around us. But that we would see only you and your throne. In all your glory. We might fall in awe. Lord, I pray this morning that as we look into your word. For just this short time. That you would open our hearts and eyes. So that we might see you for who you truly are. And we would walk out of this place changed. Yeah, it's in the beautiful name of your son. I pray these things. Amen. Amen. Hey, I, um, I remember back in the uh, 80s and 90s, somehow I became a Chicago fan. I was a Cubs fan. That's back when they were decent before the long, long stretch of being really bad. Uh, I was a Bears fan because I was a Jim McMahon fan and uh, a Walter Payton fan. And I was a Bulls fan, obviously, because of Michael Jordan. And many of you, if you're old enough to remember watching Michael Jordan play, if you're a basketball fan, you know the skills that this guy has. I mean, arguably one of the best players to ever play the game, maybe the best player to have ever played the game, right? Well, I remember uh, one game in particular of Michael Jordan. I tried to watch every game I could. I got to see the guy play twice in person, one time even to play baseball. Basketball good, baseball not so good. But I remember one game in particular. Uh, it was a playoff game, and I don't remember which season it was, was it, whether it was the first year they won the championship, the second year, or the third year in that three-peat stretch of years that they won the, uh, the basketball championship. But I remember there was a game in the NBA Finals, and uh, Michael Jordan just had this extraordinary game. But there was just this one catch. I mean, he's always extraordinary. But there was this one thing that made this game extra extraordinary. It was the fact that the guy had the flu that would have put most men in the hospital on IVs and fluids. In fact, he was getting IVs and fluids before and halftime and after the game. The guy played with the flu and had one of the best games of all of the NBA Finals I'd ever seen. And I remember thinking, that guy is a stud. Well, here's what I remember even more than that. I remember after the game... Phil Jackson, who was Michael Jordan's basketball coach at the time, he, uh, he was interviewed after the game, and the Bulls won, and uh, they were asking Coach Jackson about Michael, and is he doing all right, he has the flu, I mean, how in the world did he play so well, etc. And I remember Coach Jackson saying this. He said, you know what, this guy has the greatest concentration of motivation, of pure motivation for the game that I've ever seen in one single player. And that was it. That was all he said. And I thought about it. For some reason, it stuck with me. 
What did he mean by that? What makes Michael Jordan the player he is? In his coach's mind, it wasn't his talent. It wasn't his three-point shot. It wasn't his airtime. It wasn't his vertical. It wasn't his leadership. It wasn't his ability to get along with the other players. It wasn't his crossover. It wasn't a number of things that he could have named. It was his motivation. And for years I thought about that. For some reason it just stuck with me. What does it take to be the best? What does it take to move you to the next level? For Michael, that's what moved him in his coach's mind from being an average player to being one of the best, if not the best, basketball player to ever play. It was his motivation. I began to ask myself, what moves me? What motivates me? When I became a Christian, I began to ask myself, what moves me? What motivates me to get me from where I am to whatever the next level with God is? What will bump me out of perhaps mediocrity to the next level in my relationship with God? Have you ever asked yourself that? What is your motive behind your relationship with God? What moves you to the next level in your relationship with God? Can I tell you what my motivation was early on in my Christian Christian walk. Um, when I was in high school, I got saved. And um, I'll tell you, I, I, I finished out high school and I went to college. And uh, let me tell you what my motivation for living the Christian life was. It was to be the best Christian I could be. And here's what that meant. That I needed to wake up every morning early, 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 earlier than I could ever care to imagine waking up, get in my Bible, read a whole bunch of it, pray for... Um, a huge number of hours, right? It was that I would never cuss, that I would never lie, that I would never chew tobacco, that I would never drink. It was my list, okay? I'm just telling you here. This was, this was my motivation. My motivation for being a Christian, for pleasing the God who I was now in a relationship with, was my list. My motivation was... That if I were going to impress God or please God, then I had to do these things. And I tried my best to do those things. I tried as hard as I could to get up every morning. And I'm not a morning person. So I failed miserably. I tried my best to spend lots of time in prayer. But I failed miserably. And you know what happened when I failed each time? I hung my head. I got more and more depressed. And I thought to myself, I am a sorry individual Christian. You know, when I thought about my relationship with God, I thought about my relationship with God, that it must be very weak and it must be my fault. My motive for moving forward in the Christian walk was off. That thing that moved me, that should have moved me closer to God, it was off. I want to give you a few passages this morning to help us put our motives on the right ground to start building our relationship with God. Because if we start where I started, folks, you're just going to become frustrated with your own weaknesses and your own failings. Listen, my motive for being a good Christian, my motivation 
for my relationship with God was me. Let me show you what it should be here. Three quick passages. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on them. Turn to Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon. It's in your Old Testament, probably about the center of your Bible. Psalms, Proverbs, easy to find. Keep going to your right. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. If you get to Isaiah, you've gone too far. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 4. Let me tell you what Song of Solomon is about. Song of Solomon is about primarily the relationship between a husband and a wife, between a, a, a bride and a groom. All right? But it also, it also correlates to the relationship between God as the, as the groom and us as the bride. Does that make sense? You follow me here? Song of Solomon is primarily about and benefits us primarily between a husband and a wife relationship, of this courting relationship. It is intended for that reason. But it also has this whole other realm that we can learn from. As God is the groom and we are the bride. You see, as Solomon was an example of the kind of man God is as a groom to us as his bride. Does that make sense? All right, now I want to show you here in Song of Solomon 2, verse 4, what the bride thought about the groom and what motivated this bride to love the groom. Song of Solomon 2, why don't you start in verse 3. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest. She's describing Solomon, her groom. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. In his shade I took great delight and sat down, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He has brought me to his banquet hall, and his banner over me is love. Now that's where I want to stop. One phrase... I want to key on this morning because it's a phrase that when I found it, it changed my relationship. It changed my heart towards God. Here it is. That his banner over her is what? Love. Now, let me tell you what that means because it doesn't seem that obvious to us in the current day and time. During this time, King Solomon had an army. All kings, if they had an army, they would display their army with banners. And at the front of their battalion, at the front of the army, if they were going to march upon another city, they would carry a banner out front with a flag on it, a pole with a flag, like we would on the American flag. Well, they would put that thing right up front, except they would carry it sometimes with two poles and it would be a a big banner going. Here's what this said. It said to those who they were marching against, here's who we are marching in the name of King Solomon. And it had a symbol or something that that everyone knew this was King Solomon's army. But it also told the army itself something. That this is the guy we are going to fight for. This is the country. This is the nation that we are going to fight for. It was, in a sense, their motivation. That when this army looked forward and they saw that flag going before them, They knew and they took confidence in the fact and they motivated themselves to battle in the fact that they were marching under this king and for this nation. And they went to battle for that. And they gave their life for it, if need be. Why? All for the name on that banner. You see, the banner is what motivated them. Now listen to what this bride says about her groom, about her husband. 
What do I like about this man? What is it that causes me to follow after him wholeheartedly? In a military sense, that I would march under his banner. That I would go to my death if need be. Her language. She says, the banner that he carries over me, the banner that has been posted over me, that I find my marching orders under, that banner is not guilt, not shame, not wrath, not any of a hundred other things you might name. She says very specifically that that thing that pushes me on, that thing that I march willingly under and for, it is love. Now, take this to our relationship with God as we are the bride and He is the groom. His banner over us, the banner that we march under, that we go into battle for, is not that we are concerned that He will be unpleased with us or displeased with us if we fail. It's not a banner that says uh, that you march out of shame, guilt, or even duty. You march under a banner of love. What motivated this bride to follow her groom? It's that he was so loving she couldn't help but do it. Right? I mean, guys, husbands and wives, we can learn something about this. I need to learn something about this. What would cause our wife to follow after us in the role that God has put her in? What would be the number one thing we could do? It would be to place a banner of love over her. To help her to see overwhelmingly that we are in such a loving relationship with her that she'll do anything we ask. She'll go into battle. God has put that banner over us as believers and says, listen, march under this banner, the banner of love. Folks, why do you go for God? What about this thing called Christianity motivates you? I hope it's Song of Solomon 2.4. I hope that you understand you're marching under a banner of love. God's love for us, which includes... Which includes this whole, his love to us while we were yet sinners and in need desperately of a savior. Someone to come to where we are and bail us out. We march under a banner of love. Not of guilt, not of duty, not of shame. We go because he first loved us. And we go willingly. That is our motivation. Let me show you another passage. Flip over to Romans Turn to your right to the New Testament. Romans 2, 4. Romans 2, 4. Both of these passages uh, are principles that are in a greater context or, or among a greater lesson of the passage, but they are nuggets within these passages that I don't think we should miss. Romans 2, 4. The Apostle Paul is in... Uh, in this letter, he's helping both Jews and Gentiles to know why they are guilty before God. And among uh, the readers of his letter are Jews who should have known better, in a sense. They had been given the prophet, they had been given prophets, they had been given the law, the oracles of God, 
uh, later says in Romans, they had some benefits. They should have known better, right? Being the chosen people of God. They were supposed to be the lighthouse to the nation. Well, in 2.4, Paul's going to, in this process of making sure that everybody knows that they are guilty of sin, guilty of breaking God's law, he's going to make a couple comments here, sort of asides to the nation of Israel and to those who should have known better. Listen to what he says here in Romans 2, verse 4. Well, let me go back to 3. It'll make a little better sense. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass a judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Speaking to the legalistic Jewish culture who tried to follow every law and every rule that they could, broke a whole lot of them themselves, but they looked down upon all those guys who didn't even attempt to keep the rules, i.e. the Gentiles. And so they elevated themselves. They thought they were better. Verse 4, here's what I want you to see. Paul says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? And here it is. Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. The kindness of God leads you to repentance. I remember the day that I first got this verse, that that phrase first hit me. I was in college and I was in this mode of trying to impress God and I was failing miserably. I was trying to do the things and I was failing miserably. I was trying to be as disciplined as possible and I'd fall, fall down. And I'd feel more guilty. Uh, I thought my relationship with God was just spreading farther and farther every time I tripped, every time I fell. I was trying as hard as I could, but it was all on me. And I saw this verse. A verse that tells me what it is that God would have lead me to repentance. Repentance being back on track, back onto the straight and narrow, back into that hand-in-hand walk relationship with God. For me, what led me to repentance was a fear that God was going to hate me once again. A fear that God was going to throw me away. A fear that God was going to revoke my salvation. A fear that God was not, at the very least, going to be pleased with me anymore. Not lack of discipline. None of those things are what Paul would have me know leads me to repentance. Here in the midst of this argument, he gives us this truth. That it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Let me tell you what that means for me. It may mean a little something different in your life experience to you. What it means to me is that what I have seen in my Christian walk is that every time I fail down, no matter how often I fall down, uh, God seems to always um, be kind and generous to me. Let me explain it this way. That time and time again, when I expect God to give me this cosmic whooping, with the paddle from heaven. Instead, what he does is he blesses me. He exposes his great love for me in a clearer way. He shows me that he has been gracious to me already and that he will continue to be gracious to me. And you know what truth hits me finally? That God's goodness is the primary motivating factor leading me back into a right relationship with God 
It's what leads me to repentance. It's what motivates me to keep my walk with God on that straight and narrow. So you know what I found out? That the thing that was going to keep me as close to God as I wanted to be was not the shame that I would put on myself, not the guilt that I could heap on myself, not my own discipline, not my own efforts. What would keep me as close to God as my heart would want to be is getting a clearer look at the patience, the kindness, the long-suffering, the goodness of my God. When I see those things, here's the motivation that they are. When I see those things, I can't help, and Preston alluded to this earlier, I can't help but want to be closer to that God. Does that make sense? I can't help but want to be closer to the God who would not shame me, who would not continue to press me down with overburdened guilt, but the God who would say, I will be patient, and I will be kind, and I will be long-suffering. Because, in fact, He already has, right? That is the story of our salvation. He has already done that. Let me show you one more passage here. Revelation 2. Revelation 2, verse 4. Revelation 2, 4 is to the church at Ephesus. And he's beginning to uh, address different churches here. And uh, Ephesus is going to get some compliments. And then they're going to get a warning. Let's start in uh, verse 1 so you can get the compliments here. To the church, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. And this, by the way, is Jesus. I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate those apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake. And have not grown weary. Good stuff, right? Would that God would be able to say that about you and I. Amen? Oh, that God could say those two verses about our life. That's a good list. Look at the next verse. But I have this this one thing yet against you. That you have left your first Love that you have left your first love. Is it possible that in our churches and in our individual Christian lives, we can fulfill the list? We can do the stuff, but not do it with the right motivation. Is that possible? Yeah, it is. The church at Ephesus had got to that point. In the book of Ephesians, they were given accolades for their great love towards their God. Generations have passed now. Guys have died off. They're still continuing to do the work. They've still got the list. And Jesus gives them credit for it. But he says, listen, there's this one key part that is missing. Although you're doing all your stuff, You've left your first 
love. Listen to what one commentator said about this verse. Paul had once commended the church at Ephesus for its love for God and for others. But many of the church founders had died and the second generation believers had lost their zeal for God. They were a busy church. The members did much to benefit themselves and the community. But they were acting for the wrong reasons. Work for God must be motivated by love for God or it will not last. Just as when a man and a woman fall in love, so also new believers rejoice at their newfound forgiveness. But when we lose sight of the seriousness of sin, we begin to lose the thrill of our forgiveness. In the first steps of your Christian life, you may have had enthusiasm without knowledge. Do you now have knowledge without enthusiasm? Both are necessary if we are to keep love for God intense and untarnished. Do you love God with the same fervor as when you were new Christians? Guys, I simply want you to see this verse to say that there is a proper motivation that gives us, uh, that gets us to the place where we keep the list. But if we lose that root motivation of our love for the God who first loved us, we begin to do those things just out of duty or shame or habit or tradition. We do those things and they're good things and they're right things. But you got to know that just like the church at Ephesus, Jesus will be knocking on your heart saying, what about me? What about me, your first love? Are you doing this out of a love relationship with me or are you doing it out of your own power, out of your own self-discipline, out of your own uh, attempts at being... What is your primary motivating factor for doing the things you do for God and for developing your relationship with God? In your life, what is that thing that you use to bump you to the next level in your relationship with God, to keep you on the straight and narrow with God? If it is anything else, if it is anything other than God Himself, the one who places that banner over us, that one who pours His grace and mercy on us, drawing us back to repentance, that one who cries out, don't leave your first love, If your motivation is anything other than that God, that God of Song of Solomon 2.4, Romans 2.4, Revelation 2.4, if it is anything other than that, listen, it will last maybe for a little while, but it won't go the whole way. It's going to fall short. It's going to fall short. The primary motivating factor for you as a believer whether it's deeds in the community, whether it's being a husband, whether it's being a wife, whether it's praise, you always have to let God be the primary mover in your life. The bride knew her husband. The bride knew her groom. In repentance, we have to know the kind of God who calls us back. As a church, we have to know that we can do a whole lot of things, but we have to be doing them for our first love, for the God that we fell in love with 
at the point of our salvation, at the point of our true salvation. The God that we fall in love with at the point of our true salvation is the God who was gracious to us, who did not credit our righteousness to our own deeds, but took that penalty and that bill upon himself, and he did it for us. Now, here's what we do. When we want motivation for living this Christian life, when we want motivation for singing praise when we come together, when we want motivation, what do we do? We need to look to God. There are uh, dozens of other passages I could have shown you. I could have taken you to um, Isaiah 6. I could have taken you to Moses and the burning bush. I could have taken you to Joshua. Uh, when he runs into God, I could have taken you to Paul who said, The love of God compels me. I could have taken you to uh, a lady named Gomer who was a prostitute. I could have taken you to David, who danced unashamedly before the the Ark of the Covenant of God. I could have taken you to uh, Job, who said to God, uh, finally, uh, I had heard all this stuff about you, but now I see you. But now I see you. I could have taken you to Romans 12.1, when Paul said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. To present your life as a living sacrifice. I could have taken you to a lot of different places. Listen, so here's what we need to do. What do we do to get a clearer picture of who our God is? So that we see Him. So that we see the banner that He's put over us. So that we see how He calls us back in repentance. So that we see how He calls us back when we've gone astray and we're just doing things just to do them. A couple things. Personally, individually, we've got I've given you. They give us a clear indication of the kind of God we serve. Uh, number two, you've got to stay under teaching that is teaching of this Bible. Not about how you can have uh, a better marriage or a better way to raise your kids or you can make more money, etc. You have to stay under teaching that shows you the God of the Bible. Another thing you can do, when Preston is singing these songs... Don't just mouth the words. Go deep into the lyrics. You follow me here? Let let the words, let the testimony of the song change you. I, when I got saved, I was in a church teaching the Bible. But can I tell you, I learned more Bible from the songs that were sung, testifying to God's glory. And I remember those than I ever remember from him teaching the Bible. And he did that. He taught the Bible. I learned theology. I learned who God was from the music. Don't just sing the songs. Get in there and let those words penetrate your heart. And let them change you. Um, I'll stop right there towards the end here. From these passages, at least, um, maybe we can learn to, uh, to look up, to find that banner over us, look around, that we might see the blessings that God places around us of His kindness, of His goodness, of His long-suffering, His patience. Look up, look around. Sometimes we need to look back. We need to look back to the day of our salvation We need to ask God to restore the joy of our salvation. We need to remember, as we look back, the God that we were so impressed with that brought us to our knees and begged for His 
mercy and forgiveness and placed our faith in Christ. Look up. Know what banner you march under. Look around. See the blessedness of God's patience and mercy and kindness in your everyday life. Look back. Go back to the day where you were so impressed with the God who loves you that you'll march under His banner. Let's pray.